Brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen. On Margaret Street in London, there's a small church called All Saints Church. It's rather easy to miss. Its spire and its entrance are off the main street behind a courtyard. However, if you find it and take the time to go inside, you discover a whole new world. You see, on the inside of the church, all the walls are covered with these remarkable Victorian tiled murals. And when you enter the church, your eyes are immediately drawn to a depiction of Christ in the chancel vault. And there, Christ stands in judgment. His hands are, are, are outstretched from his majesty and from his glory as if to encircle not just the church, but his whole creation. And on one hand are the saints who are being welcomed into glory. On the other hand are the condemned, cast down to a fiery end. It's hard not to be impressed by the beauty, the, the grandeur, the, the otherness of it all. Now, when you leave the church, you also walk through a gift shop full of jewelry and books and tea towels and other trinkets. And as I was, as I was making my way through this shop, I saw a rack of postcards there depicting all the murals, all the artwork of All Saints Church. As I was sitting there trying to figure out what postcard to send my family, I came across that Christ in judgment image. And I was just about to purchase it when I looked next to the rack and there was a sign that said this, don't you want to take a little Jesus home with you? Don't you want to take a little Jesus home with you? It's an odd question. Don't you want to take a little Jesus home with you? Maybe. I mean, it kind of depends on what Jesus, right? Maybe Jesus, the good shepherd, kind and caring. Maybe Jesus, the friend of children, meek and mild. Maybe Jesus, the one who stills the storm. I like that, Jesus. Maybe the Jesus who heals. Maybe Jesus, the teacher, wise. But Jesus the judge, condemning those to a fiery end who didn't believe. That's not exactly the postcard that says, thinking of you, wish you were here. I didn't buy the postcard, but I was left with that image of Christ, an image too big to be scaled down. And I thought of that image this past week because of the lesson from Malachi chapter 3. Our reading for today begins with the Lord's answer to a question. It's really more of an accusation from the people of Israel. It starts a verse earlier. You have wearied the Lord by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? 
You see, the people of God are doing what they and what we so often do when we see bad people flourishing and good people suffering. They grumble. And they accuse God of being unfair, a liar, powerless, uncaring. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he punish the ungodly? Why doesn't he intervene as judge? If he really takes no pleasure in the wicked, why doesn't he fix it? Now, we don't know what they were so upset about, and they, maybe they were annoyed at how their godless countrymen were flourishing. Maybe they felt besieged by the pagan world around them. Maybe they were simply weighed down by their own heavy afflictions. We don't know. But whatever it was, the ways of God did not correspond to their expectations, and they wanted him to fix it. But God is weary of all this. And he commands Malachi to speak to his people of that day, of that day when he will come. At last, come to redeem that lost and fallen world. And yes, the world as it is is not as God intended it to be when he began creation. And yes, there will be fierce judgment against unrighteousness. But here's the catch. God's judgment will be on Israel's unrighteousness. God is angry at the way they have misrepresented him to the world. Back in chapter 2, we find out that the priests, who should have known better, have not shown reverence and devotion to God in worship. They've shown partiality, to the rich over the poor. Men have been faithless to their wives, divorcing their wives, the wives that God had given them, to go after foreign wives. The people had defrauded the Lord in their tithes and offering. They didn't support the ministry of the Levites, and all of this they did while continuing to worship the Lord in his most holy temple, calling on his name, where is the God of justice? Well, here's the answer. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming or stand when he appears? The prophet Malachi speaks of God as a refiner's fire. He will heat up a fire to burn away impurities. God is coming to judge Israel. He's coming to purge her sins. He's not there simply to affirm and support, but to call to account. And Malachi's point is very clear in their grumbling and in their faithlessness the people of Israel have exchanged this large vision of God God the Father God the Creator God 
the founder of the covenant. For God as the good luck charm. The trinket that they can put in their pockets and take with them. And yet, Malachi reminds them to be chosen by God is to be held accountable by him. You see, there can be no redemption until there is honest recognition that we are those in need of redemption. In order to prepare ourselves for the advent of the living God, we must face his judgment for our sin. And God comes to us and he reveals this truth to us in order that we might receive the one who comes to redeem us. God will not and cannot be scaled down. So the question is this. If God is coming, and we have it on good authority that he is, are we rightly prepared? Is our heart capable of becoming the dwelling place of the living God? Brothers and sisters, what obstacles have we put in the way, in the way of the Lord that needs to be removed? How have we exchanged that cosmic vision of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended into glory, for Christ, the good luck charm, the trinket that we stick in our pockets? How have we become so accustomed to the idea of Christ's grace and of his coming that we no longer feel the shiver that his coming and that our sins should stir up in us? How are we, like those Israelites, indifferent to God, taking only the pleasant and agreeable bits out of his word and forgetting that very serious aspect that the God of all creation draws near and claims us. We do this all the time. We get righteously indignant or probably worse, sanctimoniously smug about the war on Christmas or the war on Advent or the war on the family or the war on religious freedom, all the while slandering, murdering with our tongues, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We condemn how the world mistreats and mangles God's good gift of marriage while harboring lust in our own heart, while treating poorly disrespecting the spouse that God in his goodness has given to you. We decry the bigotries and the prejudices of the world while justifying and fanning into flame anger and hatred in our own hearts. 
My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Why? Because it wearies God. And as Malachi reminds us, he's, he's too big for that. When he comes, he doesn't come just a little bit. He comes in his fullness. Luther, when he wrote about this passage, said this, When Jesus comes, he comes not merely as the purifier, but also the purifying agent. Not only the blacksmith, but also the fire. Not only the cleaner, but also soap. And he does this to make for himself a people. So all these little attempts to use him in order to justify ourselves, to justify our thinking and our acting, our self-centeredness, our own wisdom, our own righteousness, all of that is shattered, flattened in preparation for the Lord, in the way of the Lord. And since I didn't buy that postcard, I had to go on Google last week to, to find that image from All Saints Church, that depiction of Christ in his glory. And there were some details that I had forgotten about that didn't really fit on that postcard. As you walk into the church, along the, the walls of the church are screens that depict the life of Christ. It's filled with stories of Christ from his birth to stories of his healing, his preaching and teaching, that day of judgment, his crucifixion, that day of vindication, his resurrection. And all of those stories, stories of incarnation and redemption, stories that lead up to the majesty of Christ are reminders of that grand vision of the Father who is so stubbornly determined to have all of humanity that he entered into it. And those outstretched arms of Christ are reaching out not only from his glory and his majesty and his justice, but also in love to embrace the entire creation. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. It seems like an odd way to comfort someone. Maybe I'll try it next time. I'm scolding my children. Go to your room. I don't change. But it makes sense when you look at how this whole oracle begins in chapter 1. Do you know what the first words are? The words of the Lord to his people? I have loved you. I have loved you, God says, and I don't change. My love for you has not changed. And I love you enough not to leave you to your own devices. I love you enough not to just leave you the way you are. I am coming. I am coming in the very midst of evil and of death and judge and judging the evil in you and in the world. And by judging you, I will cleanse you and will sanctify you. Come to you with grace and love. 
and I will make you joyful as children can only be joyful. So, you want to take a little Jesus home with you. I don't either. He's too big for that. In Jesus' name, amen.